you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to go all the way down into uh, the last of chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to be reading chapter 3 here in just a moment if you want to find that. Uh, it'll be somewhere near page 3102 in the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you, um, and we'll also have the words on the screen as well. As you're opening there, let me just mention really quickly, next Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour, that's at 915 um, we will be in the chapel and we'll have a what we call First Things new member class. So this is for anyone who has joined or is interested in joining First Baptist Church. It's no prerequisite or anything like that, but it'd be our joy to get to tell you a little more about the church. Strongly encourage you to, to attend that one way or the other. If you're an old member and you just need a little refresher, and trust me, some of you do, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, you should come as well, and I uh, would love for you to come be a part of that next Sunday morning at 9.15. You can let us know if you're coming to the church office, uh, just so I know kind of how long to wait to start, just in case. But uh, there's no requirement for that to come. We'll just meet you in the chapel uh, next Sunday morning around 9.15, and uh, we'll have that new member class. If you have your Bible open there, uh, why don't you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, the author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? 
Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask you, if you would, to please open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And God, it's my prayer that we will be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast. As the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last. For the times they are a-changing. Thus sang Bob Dylan, as much poet as musician. And in this passage, we see changing times. An epochal shift in the history of God's people. And in a really profound sense, I think that's something we feel even in our own world now. In many ways, it feels like we're in the final throes of the changes that Dylan first sang about. Uh, he was talking about the sweeping changes that were coming through the country in the 1960s. And, and a lot of those changes have come to full fruition in these days. In fact, I would go as far as to say there's something even about the death of the queen this week. It makes me feel the finality of those changes in an even more clear way. It feels like the death of something more than just a queen. But I want you to notice that in this text, the sort of change that's being talked about is different. It's different than the change we often worry about in our own world and society and culture. It's different than the change we often fear in our lives. This change in this text is reflective of, of God's economy. And it's reflective of the fact that God is at work even when the days are dark, even when God's people are in difficult times, even when the word is rare, even when the priests are wicked, even when awful things are happening, God is still at work. I think if we back up just a hair and look at Hannah's song, you start to get a sense of the direction things are headed, not only in this passage, but in the rest of the books of First and Second Samuel. For example, notice what she says in her hymn, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Thus in her hymn, Hannah was setting the tone and setting the theme, prophesying, if you will, for the future which Samuel's birth would represent. I think oftentimes, even as Christians, because of the sin in the world, it seems like wickedness rules the day. I mean, I hear this from you. I hear it in your voices. I hear it in the things you say. I hear the fear that a lot of us have about this sort of feeling we often get that worldly power is all that matters. And sometimes it feels like God's desires are not very relevant. It feels that way because of the sin in the world, because of the darkness around us. But these verses 
show us something totally different. You see, we look out and we think the world we see and the world we perceive, where wickedness seems to run rampant, where the proud seem to get their way, when the godly seem to be trodden upon, we look at that and we think that's the way the world is. That's the way things really are. Try to be shrewd. But this passage shows us the way the world actually is. You see, God is actually the ruler of this world. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is our Father's world. And as we look to this text, we see the waning of Eli's wicked line and the rise of a new prophet. And we see the way that as the times are changing in Israel, we see the fact that God is giving us a sense of what it means to get on board with his program. He's showing us what his world is really like. He's giving us a little bit of a picture of the final judgment to come and the final renewal of the world that is off in the future. But we begin to see the sort of comeuppance and the sort of judgment that the wicked actually will receive. So we begin to get a sense, in in a true sense, of what God's program, what God's economy is actually like. This morning, as we work through this wonderful story, I want to help you see three truths that I think will help you be sure. Maybe, Maybe you can think of these in a diagnostic way, to begin to be sure and think about whether or not you're lined up with the world as it really is. Instead of lining your life up with the world as it seems, the sinful fallenness of the world. I want to show you then three truths today that will help you cut through the noise of the world and cut through the noise of sin and line your life up with the will of God. To get on board with where things are going uh, with God. The times are a-changing, be sure. And we want to make sure that we're lined up, not hedging our bets for the way things seem, but by faith and through grace that we're lined up with things as God has truly made them and truly will make them. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Flee fleeting wickedness. It dies. First truth this morning is flee fleeting wickedness. It dies. In chapter 1, we got a very brief introduction with hardly any commentary to two infamous characters in the Bible. The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. We get plenty of commentary here in chapter 2, beginning with one of the most um, harsh and, and difficult statements that is given to anyone in the Scriptures. Now the sons of Eli, the Bible says, were worthless men. This is coming fresh out of this beautiful hymn of Hannah's, and then we're reintroduced to this family that are supposed to be religious leaders there in Shiloh where the ark of God was and where worship of God happened. There was obviously a temple of some sort. We don't know otherwise from the Bible exactly what it looked like or what it was like. Only that the ark of God had come to rest there in Shiloh and it had become by this moment some sort of a center of worship. These sons of Eli were worthless men. The Bible then begins to describe the sort of behavior that justifies such a sentence. One, They were stealing from the people, and in so doing, also stealing from the Lord. You see, the people would be preparing their sacrifices, boiling their sacrifice in a pot, and they would send a servant of the priest. That term might mean someone who's one of their servants, but more than likely means one of the two of them. And they would go with this three-pronged fork. And I want you to notice something about, this is from the text Woody read earlier, 
It says, while the meat was boiling, down into verse 13, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it, verse 14, into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. This is sort of a poetic way of showing the kind of gluttony and the sort of reckless abandonment with which these men stole from God's people. You say, it didn't matter what kind of vessel it was. It could be a pan, a cauldron, a kettle, or a pot. Whatever you had, they were sticking their three-pronged fork into it to bring out from it some of that which you were trying to give to the Lord. Stealing from God's people. The Bible says this was a practice there, something that was established. Second of all, they were holding God's offering with contempt. Not only were they taking meat in this way from the boiled offerings, but on top of that, beyond that which was already apportioned to the priests, according to the law, mind you. But then, furthermore, what they would do is they would hold God's offering with contempt, and they would go and demand raw meat, uh, contrary to the law of God that had commanded that the fat be burned before the priests receive any of his portion. Nonetheless, they would go and take these choice joints of meat from God's people, they would steal this from them. And if they would try to resist, not in order to resist the priest, but in order to honor God, they would force them, force them to do it. Notice what the Bible says, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now can you think? of one thing worse for a priest to do than to treat the offering of the Lord with contempt. But this isn't all that they've done. Verse 22, we learn something more. The plot thickens there. Because he has heard of all his sons are doing, Eli begins a toothless rebuke of them. Though he would say to them they should stop doing these things, but never really did anything to enforce it. But there in this rebuke, we begin to learn something about further about the nature of the way that these men were sinning there was also a sexual nature to their sin they were also sleeping with the women who served at the tent of meeting taking advantage of God's people in every way imaginable unthinkable sins in so many ways Eli said to them verses beginning verse 23 why do you do such things for I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is a pattern we see throughout the Bible where people continue in their sin for so long that eventually God gives them over to their sin. He hardens their heart like He did to Pharaoh. They had come to the same place where they had continued in their sin and continued in an unrepentant way for so long that God gave them over, in this sense, to their sins. And they would not listen to the voice of their father. You see, you see these men, and they seem to be the kind of men who are on top of the world, don't they? I mean, who's going to stop them? Who is there who's going to make them quit this stuff? Some angry man is going to find out? No, they, they kind of have the power. They have the authority. Their father is not able to stop them. They, they are fattening themselves on the people. They're living a, a, a life of passion. There wasn't a pan or a kettle or a cauldron or a pot that they wouldn't steal from. They took raw meat by force before even the Lord had had his portion. And they even had their way with the women who were there 
to serve the Lord. It seems like men, they seem like men who are high and mighty. The kind of men that frustrate us. Their cavalier wickedness seem to rule the day. But brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. And as we will see in short order, these men and their ungodly father will soon be cast down. There might have been young men in those days in Israel who looked on them and said, man, that's the kind of life I want to live one day because I want to be able to do whatever I want whenever I want to. But they were deceived if they thought that. I want you to know something, my friends. No matter what this present order may look like, it does not accurately reflect reality. You see, we look around and it feels like sin will last forever. It feels like anyone at any time including ourselves, can get away with wickedness for as long as we want. Who cares, we think? Who cares, the world seems to say. Lighten up! But I want you to know, we must be sure to know, that judgment awaits sin and wickedness. Judgment awaits sin and wickedness. This, this should press us My friends, those of us in the room who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this should press us to flee to Christ. Sin won't last forever. Hang tight. Cling closely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be be off with sin, which clings so closely, and, and hold tightly to the Lord Jesus. But it should also press us to be as gracious as possible, for it's the grace of God that overcomes sin. I know how troubled we are by the sins around us. And I've said enough times, be more troubled by your own sin than you are the sins around you. But it's worth reminding us and knowing we ought to be troubled by sin. We ought to be frustrated by sin. And I would guess there are probably some of you here who sort of wish sometimes. You say, you know, I've heard some preachers and others who seem to be a little bit harsher on the world than Brother Matt is. You know, there's all this stuff going on, and I kind of wish Matt would drop the hammer on them a little more often to remind them of judgment and remind them of their wickedness. But I want you to know something. I'll never stop preaching sin, and I'll never stop preaching the clarity of the Scriptures on sin, that God will judge the wicked and God will judge sin. But I want you to know the reason why I preach grace every Sunday is precisely because I take sin so seriously. It would be so easy to get up here and bludgeon the people around us over their sin and and try to encourage them to do better and to be better. And you you better act right because judgment's coming. But my friends, that will do nothing but make a new class of Pharisees who are just as damned as they were before. We take sin seriously, therefore we take grace seriously. And we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the only delivery any of us have from this wicked age is through a crucified and bloodied Savior who took the wrath of God on our behalf. That's why we don't preach judgment constantly to those around us. Christ has been judged on our behalf. I want them to see the Lord Jesus with His arms wide open and to flee from that sin and to run and be embraced by the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee fleeting wickedness. It dies. It doesn't last forever. Second of all, love lowly godliness. It lasts. Love 
lowly godliness, it lasts. Humility is inconspicuous. Humility is hard to see, which is one reason we hate it so much. It's one reason we don't like it. It doesn't give the appearance of winning, and we like to win. But I want you to notice how God is bringing faithfulness to His people. As we go through this shameful list of acts of Hophni and Phinehas, I want you to notice the contrasts that the author gives us. First of all, you see it framing the discussion in chapter 2, verse 11. At the end of Hannah's prayer, before we learn about these worthless men, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now, jump down to verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Immediately after we heard about the sin of the young man and the contempt they have for the offering of the Lord, we hear about this young boy who's clothed with the linen ephod, whose mother each year made for him a little robe and would take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Hannah and Elkanah are continuing their quiet faithfulness, and God blessed them with more children. We see this sort of quiet humble, lowly godliness in contrast with this flashy, luxurious wickedness. And then in chapter 2, verse 25, we hear they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And then notice immediately in verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so you see the way that through a mere child, through a little boy in a linen ephod and this cloak that his mother had made for him, he is growing in stature and favor with God and with man. Through this humble family, we see the simple blessings of God rather than enriching and engorging themselves. Instead, they're accepting God's blessings with humility and bringing sacrifices year after year. And instead of these worthless men, we see a little boy who's ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. But then the plot changes even more distinctly as we see this contrast between the boy Samuel and these worthless men. Eli himself is then confronted by what the Bible calls a man of God. And there, a man of God came to Eli, verse 27, and said to him, Thus says the Lord. And he he works through a sort of sermon to him. In verses 27 and 28, he reminds him of his calling. Verse 29, he rebukes him for his sin, saying, You value your sons over me, (laughs) and you won't sharply rebuke them or end their sin. And then he warns him for his judgment, saying he's going to cut off his family, that, that anyone who's left of his line will not be living sumptuously with feasting, but instead will be begging for bread. And then he promises a replacement. In verse 35, which is fulfilled later in Zadok the priest in 2 Samuel who served under David. Because God is raising Samuel up, not to be priest, but to be prophet. Now now notice this. One group here, Hophni and Phinehas and even Eli, they seem to be on top of the world. They seem to have all, as James calls it, the world's goods. Anything you want to bring pleasure to yourself, they are getting at the expense of God and His people. And it seems like they're able to just run roughshod over these things. Like the Lord won't do 
anything. But then you have this contrast. This little boy, a child of all things, in a linen ephod. They probably didn't even notice him or thought it was funny to see him, this little boy there. And then just a man with no name. An anonymous man of God. I've been collecting in my mind in recent years some of the anonymous people of the Bible. Paul talks about he who is famous for the preaching of the gospel in all the churches. And isn't it funny that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us his name? And here a man of God comes and changes the course of Israel's history with a, a, a word from the Lord to Eli the priest, and the Bible never gives us his name. Do you see the way that there is a sort of lowly godliness that's being contrasted with this sort of luxurious wickedness? I want to encourage you to embrace lowly godliness. It doesn't seem like it, but it lasts. The stuff that seems like it lasts forever, the sin and the wickedness, that stuff is dying. But the stuff that seems like nobody knows or cares about, that's the stuff that lasts. Think about Hannah and her enduring legacy and the blessing of God that resulted in more children for this humble mother. Think about Samuel, this little boy in a linen ephod who is the first prophet that Israel has known for a really long time. And think about this man of God whose name is lost to history, but whose faithfulness speaks to us here even today oh if those don't provide enough of an example for you consider your lord jesus christ who do you think it was that walked by him on the cross and saw a naked and bleeding man there and looked up and said well looky there there's the king of kings and the lord of lords and there on that cross he is establishing a kingdom without end nobody thought that nobody saw that But in all these cases, they embraced a lowly godliness that proved to last longer than any of the fleeting wickedness around them. For now, there is no Roman Empire. There is no Sanhedrin. But the kingdom of our Lord and the kingdom of our God and of His Christ lasts forever and ever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, flee wickedness. It dies. Embrace lowly Godliness, it lasts. And finally, hear heaven's witness. He speaks. Hear heaven's witness. He speaks. Now the boy Samuel, again we see, in chapter 3, verse 1, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What a sad thing for the people of God to be without the Word of God. To not be hearing from the Lord. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. I think the author here is trying to help us see two things. One, the fact this was probably in the middle of the night that this is happening, but I think he's using a little bit of a double meaning here, a little bit of a double entendre to help us see the way that Eli was not able to see what he needed to see, and that things had grown dark in Israel, but the lamp of God had not yet gone out. God himself would not leave his people without a witness. In total, four times the Lord calls to Samuel. Each time, the first three times, he goes to Eli, and Eli's confused 
Verse 7 explains Samuel's inability to hear. He'd never, he had no experience with this. He had nobody to teach him. He had never heard the word of the Lord before. But nothing explains Eli's difficulty in seeing and understanding the things of God from the moment when Hannah's praying in the temple all the way until now. We see the way that the absence of the Word of God is such, such a travesty in the life of God's people. Finally, on the third try, Eli realizes that God is speaking to the boy. In verses 8 and 9, he tells him what to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And thus Samuel does. And then the Lord, beginning in verse 10, he begins to receive this message. 11 through 14, as we read earlier, you hear that God gives a confirmatory message to Samuel. He's confirming through Samuel something Samuel presumably didn't know about. We don't know that he heard from this man of God, but God through two witnesses is speaking judgment to the house of Eli. And this confirming word was a burden to Samuel. He was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli forces him and receives the bad news as well as can be expected. Retaining just enough smidgen of godliness to receive God's justice. Saying, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. But I want you to see how beautiful this story ends here. Or this section ends. Verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, he was heard. He was established as a prophet. In all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's such a danger for us. There's such a danger for us to be so focused on how dark things are, to be so worried about how things are around us, to allow the state of things to lure us into a practical atheism that uses God in name but does not honor Him in deed. You see, we could wind up just like Hophni and Phinehas if we're not careful. We can find ourselves adhering to a form of godliness but at the same time denying its power because we are ignoring God's Word. We cannot do the things of God apart from the ways of God and we will not know the ways of God and God's instruction on how to handle ourselves in the world without His Word. But praise be to God, God will not, He has not, He cannot let Himself be without a witness. There may be moments and times and seasons where it seems like the Word falls by the wayside, but trust me that God's people will never last long without a commitment to the Word. We must be committed to the Word of God. God's church has always been reformed, revived, and restored through the power of the Word. And though there may be seasons where it seems like God has ceased to speak, He always roars forth again by His Word. Brothers and sisters, this is our book. From the very first day until the very last day that the First Baptist Church exists, this book is what we base our lives on. It's who we are. We're a people of the book. Don't be deceived, my friends. The times they are... A changing. Do not become so preoccupied with the darkness that you miss the dawning light. The way you see the world now is not the way the world will always be. 
And the only way to get on board with God's program is by grace through faith in Christ. We flee wickedness by Spirit-empowered repentance. We embrace godliness only by grace through faith. Do you hear heaven's witness? Our Lord Jesus Christ with arms open wide inviting you to drink deeply of His grace. Do you hear Him speaking in His Word even now? I pray you do, and I pray you'll answer. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Hear in faith. Respond in faith, even now. I want to invite you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, to respond to His grace today. There's nothing you can do to be saved, but God will save you if you'll turn from repentance, turn from sin and repentance, and turn to God in faith through Jesus. I believe you will be saved. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You need some moments to pray through these things. Right where you are, down front, you're welcome to pray. You may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I'd like to invite you to come. Let's pray together.